And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Peter Meyer was a little-known freshman representative in 2021, when weeks after entering office, he voted to impeach President Donald Trump. Trump spent the next two years targeting Meyer, who narrowly lost a Republican primary for renomination last year. I spoke recently at the Institute of Politics with Meyer, just 35 years old, and already a veteran of two wars and the political wars at home. Here's that conversation. Peter Meyer, great to see you and especially to welcome you to the Institute of Politics. So glad you're here. Well, thank you very much for having me. I feel a little intimidated because you've got a bunch of papers in front of you and I am I am clean desk. Yes. Well, you don't need any. You, you're an expert on yourself, so you don't need any notes. Uh, I'm just learning. And that's, of course, why I wanted to speak with you, because I think people, when they they hear your name nationally, to the extent they recognize it, it has to do with the fact that you voted for impeachment and probably lost your seat because of it. Mm-hmm. People of Michigan recognize the name for other reasons. So let's start there sure. and talk a bit about your family and Hendrick uh, Meyer, uh, who uh, came to Michigan in the 1930s, mm-hmm. who was your great-grandfather. Mm-hmm. Yes, my great-grandfather came over from the Netherlands um, you know, kind of the turn of the century, and was a, a farmer, um, had a, a dairy farm, uh, was a barber. Um, he had bounced around the country a little bit, uh, going out to Washington State and, and working in a foundry and some apple orchards, and eventually settled in Greenville, Michigan, uh, where in addition to oh, farming- I see, that's when, that yeah. was the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, so in the Depression, he- Tried to get into the haircut business, uh, built a barber shop in downtown Greenville, uh, built the building a little bit bigger so that he could rent out the space next door. Uh, ended up not being able to find a tenant, so he took $338 worth of merchandise on credit from A&P and opened up a, a grocery store. And you know, 90 some years later, close to 90 years later, uh, we have over 250 super centers in Michigan, Ohio, Kentucky, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin. And one of the larger kind of family-owned businesses in the U.S. I live in uh, part-time in Southwest Michigan, so mm-hmm. I'm very, very familiar with the store and the name. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm sure you're proud of. You can I can hear it in your voice. You're proud of that story. That a great entrepreneurial mm-hmm. uh, story, great American story. But I read somewhere that you also, when you were in high school went by a different spelling of the name. <laughs> so it struck me that there was probably there were probably ups and downs to being a Meyer in Michigan when you were a young kid growing up. And, and the funniest thing about the geographic balance, you know, if you have not been to the Midwest, there is no reason for you to be familiar with our, you know, grocery stores at yeah, all. Yeah. At all. But when it comes to, you know, kind of growing up, you know, you know, I grew up in Grand Rapids. It's a pretty small town. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, and certainly having the stores as a, a large employer and where everybody shops. And, uh, you know, I think my parents were concerned about our teachers treating us differently because of our last name, you know, you know good or bad, uh, and wanting a little bit more privacy. So uh, my name was legally changed to M-E-Y-E-R. Uh, and then I changed it back when I turned 18. And 
kind of left Michigan. Yeah, how'd you feel about that? Did you? I don't know that I was conscious. I think my name was changed when I was like four. Oh, so I, I see. I, you know, I wasn't necessarily interesting. Uh, you know, focusing you, too you, much. Your folks and your family seem uh, to be cautious about generally. Uh, for example, there are there are these sort of very you know DeVos, and there are these big, uh, well-known business names in Michigan that also were deeply involved in politics. Your family wasn't one of those. We hadn't, partially because of the fact that, you know, grocery is pretty local to the extent that we're kind of dealing with uh, a regulatory apparatus or, or interacting with the government. You know, most of it may be around siting and permitting for a store within a uh, municipality uh, or, you know, regulations that are coming at the state level. You know, so because we're not a national business, I mean, we're regional, uh, there really wasn't that much interaction federally now that having been said um you know gerald ford yeah our, our most famous president. uh most famous uh resident of uh or citizen of of grand rapids michigan yeah no our, our, our kind of proud uh our, our grand rapids president you know that you know he had been a longtime member of congress and obviously you know our families were were close and, and knew each other very well and to the extent where um, my father was very closely involved with the Gerald R. Ford Foundation, the Ford Museum, and and so there was that kind of lens into federal politics. And my dad started off his career as a journalist, and, oh, is that right? Uh, and just recently published a uh, a pretty authoritative biography on Senator Arthur Vandenberg, another mm-hmm. kind of grand, son of Grand Rapids, who was formative in bringing the Republican Party from isolationism to internationalism yes. in World War II. Yes, yes. So I think usually. A, not necessarily getting deep into the 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 muck of politics, but still being engaged on on policy and history and those kind of longer arcs. You know, it strikes me when you mention those two names. I mean, they represent a strain of republicanism that is. I mean, Jer- Jerry Ford was a very pragmatic Republican, conservative for sure, but he lived in an era where. There was uh, a lot of bipartisanship and back and forth. Vandenberg, as you mentioned, uh, was an internationalist in a party that had a big isolationist strain. There are a lot of tensions with those two interpretations of politics in the Republican Party today. And that was one of the chief ironies of my, my dad's biography that he started working on I think before I was born. So he was working on this starting in the mid to late 1980s, um, you know, publishes it in uh, 2018 or 2019. And, you know, I think didn't necessarily expect that it would be as relevant uh, a topic, you know, the question of the U.S. and the global order, uh, the U.S. as a member of NATO, what are our expectations with that alliance, uh, questions around the U.S.'s role in the United Nations uh, and the consequences of the Marshall Plan and rebuilding. Uh, those became very salient <laughs> yeah. in that time frame. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to lose the thread of your story, but I do, since we're here, I do want to ask you about that. President went to Ukraine mm-hmm. and to Poland in, in this past week and really made a strong plea for the alliance to hang together and to lay out the stakes of what a Russian victory in Ukraine would mean. But there were many people in your party who criticized him for going, saying he shouldn't have gone, should have been in, in Ohio where the train disaster took place. A lot of people saying, 
And there's polling that supports, particularly on the Republican side, more and more opinion that hey, we're pouring too much money into this. So I'm wondering what your view of all of that is through the lens we just talked about. I certainly think it was appropriate and, and positive for him to go to Ukraine. Uh, I've been very critical of the administration in the early months of the war uh, as somebody who's talking with many Ukrainian members of parliament and other folks who are active in in the overall context. And in the beginning, it was, it'd be really nice to have some senior leadership from the U.S., not necessarily the president, but some senior leadership come. I think Boris Johnson was one of the first heads of state to, to go to Kiev. And, you know, after a couple of months, it went from, it'd be really nice if they came to basically everybody but the U.S. has been there, you know, and, and we eventually sent uh, Secretary Blinken and Secretary Austin, um, you know, reopened the embassy. So, you know, I think we've done some of those right things. It's been not necessarily on the time frame that I would have preferred, but I'm not going to criticize the president for going there. Um, I think it was a, a positive show of, of solidarity and commitment. When it comes to articulating the case and the rationale to the American public on why we are supportive of Ukraine defending itself, why we're investing uh, at this point probably over $100 billion and, and rising in that. I've been frustrated that the administration hasn't necessarily felt like they need to articulate that case. And being in the position where you're talking to constituents and folks say, you know, we think that this is a good thing to do, but help us understand where this is going. Help us, you know, flesh out that picture. We're talking, we're going to be doing $40 Mm -hmm. billion every six months into perpetuity because those numbers start to add up very significantly. And, and also understanding and rebutting some of the bad faith critics who just think we're writing a $43 billion mm-hmm. check and it's going into the ether, not picking apart and saying, okay, well, $16 billion is going to uh, reimburse the Department of Defense for increased deployments of U.S. troops in NATO right. countries to right. solidify the alliance. Some of this is going to reimburse our own stockpiles of weaponry or to purchase new weaponry. It's not as cut and dried as some of the detractors make it, but the administration hasn't been articulating to the point of trying to, to make that affirmative case. That, yeah. that has been my frustration. Don't you think, I mean, I, I want to get back to the sort of schism within the Republican mm-hmm. Party, but don't you think that when the president goes to Ukraine and Poland, and those things are obviously televised here, and talks about the consequences of Ukraine, the, the necessity of Ukraine winning because of what it means to freedom and democracy, and don't you think that, is a message to the American people as well. Without a doubt. I think the challenge is the the moral message and, and the way that I, I tend to look at things is I don't expect someone to share my my morals or share my values if we're making a cold-hearted, realist argument. We should be agreement on some of that data, right? We spent $24 trillion in, I think, 22 infl- inflation-adjusted dollars as of 2022 in the Cold War period for our defense. You know, in $100 billion to thoroughly decimate Russia's military capacity with, you know, without any American troops uh, mm-hmm. putting themselves in harm's way. In Cold War terms, that is just an incredible, incredible return on, you know, a significant, but in the grand sweep of things, you know, pretty small investment. The challenge becomes understandable concerns about escalation. I don't necessarily agree because I think there's a greater threat of escalation mm-hmm. in the face of our inaction versus our action. In other words, if Russia were to actually conquer Ukraine, which is essentially what they're do, trying mm-hmm. to do, then they're right a hard on the border of NATO 
allies, and especially, uh, you know, and not especially, but including Poland, which is why the Poles are so exercised mm-hmm. about this. But let me get back to that. That is a, I find that to be a compelling argument. And there are, and I will say that there was a bipartisan show of support at the Munich conference, mm. security conference, a few days before the president left, met some members of Congress, leaders of Congress, and others were there. But there was a lot of criticism. There is an isolationist wing mm-hmm. in your party, led by some of your old colleagues, and the president, Trump, who uh, your career intersected with. In a yeah, really actually, never met the man or talked to the man, you know, for, for all he, he hangs over things. Yeah. Well, they hung over you. We'll talk more about that. But are you worried about that? Are you worried about the Republican Party becoming an isolationist party? Yeah, I don't want us to overcorrect from some of the expansionism we saw in the post 9-11 moment. Right? I think that is the challenge in so much of our politics is we don't go from, you know, if, if the place the pendulum should be stopping is closer to the center and it's pulled to one end, it just shoots right past. There are legitimate arguments to be made why we should be very wary of involving ourselves in Ukraine. I don't agree with those, but I think there are legitimate good faith arguments one can make. Uh, The profusion of bad faith arguments or just, um, you know, kind of Putin fanboys, you know, kind of coming out of the woodwork that this- um, The Tucker Carlson wing. I I mean, the- it's very different from saying, you know, objectively, Putin was wrong to invade Ukraine, but you know, our core national interests are not being served by us going there. Again, I disagree, but there is a good faith argument to be made that it's very different from, no, Putin was right because there were bioweapons labs and, and NATO provoked it and NATO started it. I mean, I think one of the, the telling signatures of the past sort of decade in Republican politics is a lot of the kookier elements that used to find a home on the left have now decamped and found their home on the right. A lot of like the Lyndon LaRouche, you know, type of folks that are, you know, at the ends of the horseshoe where both sides of the political spectrum, you know, come close to meeting, you know, that, that strain, you know, and there's a reactionary element to it for sure. But that strain has found, um, kind of a home amongst the nihilists or amongst the, you know, in opposition to everything element. And I, I struggle to put my finger on it, but it, it, it has no grounding. I mean, imagine telling a, a, a John Birch Society member who would have been kind of on the extreme end of the, the Republican Party in the, the 60s or 70s, you know, that that party is now, you know, has, has adherents who are standing beside folks with, you know, hammer and sickle hats um, and, and, and kind of almost reveling in, in this moment. I mean, there, nothing about it is ideologically coherent. Right. I mean, there, there's more of a. An but there is because you, you mentioned the, the post 9-11 era and you were intimately involved in that. We'll talk about that in a second uh, on the ground. But the enormous amount of money that we invested in Iraq and Afghanistan has created a kind of sentiment that we should be closer to home. That's more broadly shared. But so there in some ways, these neo isolationists are pushing on a on an open door. But there seems to be a fissure. You know, you, for example, uh, Governor DeSantis was critical of the president and his trip. Nikki Haley, when she announced and in her interviews afterwards, was advocating a more robust kind of foreign policy. Gerald Ford, it was interesting for another reason that must have occurred to you during your 
tenure, which was one term in Congress, Mm -hmm. because of the political risk that he took in pardoning President Nixon after Watergate for, he argued, healing and getting past this huge national trial uh, that or nightmare that uh, Watergate was. How much did you think about that when you cast your vote to impeach President Trump just weeks after joining the Congress? I mean, was Ford an inspiration to you? So, and you can look at it in one of two ways. I mean, one, you know, the act of of doing what he thought was the right thing for the country, despite the personal impact and, and kind of sacrifice from a political may well have cost you know, him the presidency i think it's very i don't want to say inarguable but i mean that seems like the consensus was that was one of the things that really uh, made him a one-term president mm-hmm. and very controversial at the time in the broader sweep of history looking back now many of the folks who were deeply critical of that move i think have, have by and large come around to saying that that was the right thing to do that that was important for the country to move past and i had in my you know deliberations on whether or not to vote to impeach and or the mid-January 2021, you know, there was that question of would impeachment be more divisive or more destructive than than not acting? And and in the back of my head too, and, and this came up in conversation, well, you know, Ford, you know, pardoned Nixon. So there's a, a, a sort of precedent in trying to move past. And my point was I pardoned Nixon after Nixon resigned and took responsibility and, you know, kind of came clean, right? So there's a difference between uh, the accountability having been met out versus a lack of accountability, a lack of any recognition, a lack of any semblance of acknowledgement on behalf of the former president that what transpired after the election and specifically what transpired you know, on the Capitol on January 6th was unacceptable, that there was responsibility that he bore uh, and that his kind of reckless actions led to uh, a deeply shameful um, and, and embarrassing turn of events that uh, we should not tolerate. Now, if we do tolerate, shame on us going forward. Yeah. So what's your feeling about whether, if the evidence warrants, whether he should be prosecuted? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm deeply unsettled by the prospect of prosecuting former presidents. I mean, on the one hand, you don't want to say that anybody's above the law for sure. On the other hand, weighing the Getting in, well, getting into that, going down that path, I think is di- very, very dangerous. And I felt the same way about, you know, subpoenas of members of Congress and and other areas where you may be able to justify it today, but depending on the precedent that's being set, the potential for that to be abused in the future is is exponential. So I'm I'm deeply, deeply unsettled by that, and I hope that's not a bridge that we have to cross. I mean, I think one of the challenges in our political cycle. In the short term, and, and the classified documents has been scandals across the aisle has been almost the perfect encapsulation. There may be people living in houses more with more glass than than the others, or throwing bigger or more stones than others. But there's just an endemic. There are some things that are endemic to our politics that we should not tolerate. But the more we set new and additional precedents in terms of reaction. Uh, the harder will be to control where that ball stops. I agree with you. These are weighty, weighty questions. But there's a difference between sort of flagrant, as you point out. You know, I, I don't know if Nixon actually came clean, but he he obviously he resigned yeah. uh, in disgrace and went away. Mm-hmm. Here you have a president who, to this day, continues to propagate 
the lie that created the insurrection is running again, took hundreds of these documents, claims that he was perfectly within his rights to do so, as opposed to, you know, Biden, Pence, who had a smaller number of documents and acknowledged right away, no, these should not be here. I mean, so he's so flagrant. Yeah. No, and and there's, there's gradations. Yeah. I mean, the challenge is it's, you know, I think you can, you can good faith make the distinctions, but it's not a, a zero or one. It's not a binary. It's like, well, it's less worse here. It's like, okay, I mean, because and that's the challenge, right? Is it was you can have a good faith discussion with somebody, but to rebut the notion that you know one side is is perfectly clean and the other side is wholly dirty, I think Donald Trump was certainly in the wrong to especially be kind of at least as far as we understand to be more deceptive, to be you know kind of stonewalling, to not be operating in good faith. But then the standard comes around the reaction rather than the underlying action, and that just it complicates things. Yeah. Well, he complicates things. There's there's no to his benefit question about right? it. I mean, to be viewed as and this is also like in the more cynical sense, Trump only benefits from critical media attention. Trump only benefits from, you know, actions by If he entities. were indicted on that point, if he were indicted, how would it affect him? His within- popularity would go up twenty points. You think so? Yeah. Huh. Interesting. I've heard this discussion that uh, especially among the base this would just be more evidence of persecution of Donald mm-hmm. Trump. If they're that afraid of him, he must be doing something right. He must be threatening them, right? And he will portray it as the as an effort to silence not just him, but his followers. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition, wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. You went to West Point. Mm-hmm. Your family stressed service. That was a big thing in your in your upbringing. You went to West Point. You stayed for a year. Mm-hmm. Why did you leave West Point? Yeah, I, I, I went to West Point because I knew I wanted to serve in the military. You know, I, I think 
one of the challenges if you've never been in the military trying to figure out what what are the roles that you're really going to latch on to what are the things that are going to drive you and make you passionate um you know, what, what why I, did you want to be in the military i don't i mean apart from just nebulous ideas of wanting to serve you know i had a lot of um i knew a lot of folks and a lot of mentors who you know had not a single one of whom who had served in the military regretted it a number who had not served regretted not serving mm-hmm. and and i didn't want to have those regrets uh, and also at the same time i mean we had um we were still fighting in both iraq and afghanistan wanting and, and it, it just didn't feel right to have folks fighting on my behalf if i am not there alongside them right? like that that just that rubbed me the wrong way i loved west point and going there was the best decision i made the the question of whether or not to stay because i was cognizant of the fact that if i'm i didn't want to just what they call take five and dive you know the goal and the mission of west point is to uh you know train cadets for careers as active duty army officers there's a minimum five-year active duty service commitment uh and i my, my time at west point i wasn't sure that i wanted to be active duty for the career and i i also wasn't sure that i wanted to be in the officer corps relative to having more of a technical competency as a non-commissioned officer. Uh, and I was cognizant that the more time I was spending there, that was a seat that could have gone to somebody who would want to commit uh-huh. their career there. So, so you, you, you migrated a couple hours south and uh, went to Columbia University. I can't think of a starker contrast. I, I definitely wanted to bookend things a little bit and mm-hmm. to get that bracket. And then, but also as a, if this wasn't part of the service commitment, but my my goal was to to transfer to a civilian college and I'll be honest, in the back of my mind, I also thought that the wars would end before I had a chance to have that experience and to be able to serve you know in in a conflict zone. So I transferred to Columbia uh, and then went moved to enlist in the Army Reserves, which is not a thing people do. Like my recruiter was like, I don't know what to do with this, like this, right? So you left West Point. You don't want to be an officer. You're trying. You know, I was going backwards in a lot of ways, but. Um, I was very passionate about intelligence uh, and, and military intelligence, and uh, that was something that I wanted to be able to have more of a um, a specific role in rather than a, a more generalist capacity, which uh, at least in the earlier junior officer stages oftentimes tends to be uh, a, a more administrative or generalist within the intelligence realm. So before you left college, between your I guess your junior and senior years, you were called up, your unit was called up and you spent a year in Iraq. Tell me about that and how that experience affected you. You're doing interrogations, correct? Barely. I mean, so my, my, my role was as a, a human intelligence collector. So that had two main buckets. One was interrogations and the other was source operations. So recruiting and running sources. You know, By the time we got there, uh, and actually, I mean, pretty shortly after Abu Ghraib and some of the earlier scandals around detention facilities uh, and, and abuse and torture, there a lot of that had shifted to pretty severe accountability, plus the fact that the there were at none of the facilities I was located did we have any detention facilities run by the US. It was all Iraqi detention facilities. So on the interrogation side, you know, we'd sit there and ask some questions with an interpreter or with an Iraqi, you know, army officer or non-commissioned officer standing behind us. That guy's not going to say anything to me that he hasn't already told to the Iraqi because as soon as we leave, bad things could happen to him if he was, you know, changing up his story. And the reality was we couldn't, there was nothing I could do to make that guy's life better or worse. So, so you know, tell, was, tell me what you, what you did do and, yeah. and tell me if whether that year changed you, whether you were a different person after 
that experience when you went back to your senior year at Columbia? This was 2010 to 2011. We're, we're drawing down. We're reducing the forces. We had, I mean, something on the order of 50,000 troops in country when I landed in August of 2010, and we were down to 15,000 or so when I left in June of 2011. And so we were closing down bases, trying to plan for that staying residual mission and really trying to work force protection. I mean, trying to keep our folks safe. A lot of the the Sunni elements had stopped attacking the U.S. It was mostly Iranian-backed Shia militants. You know, the Sunni groups were waiting for the U.S. to leave so they could, you know, potentially now form ISIS and kind of rise up. You know, that was in the background. It was a very frustrating scenario where we were relying on the predominantly Shia Iraqi military for our protection and on joint bases with them. But the groups that were attacking us were Shia back or Iranian backed Shia militants. And the so the people who were essentially our bodyguards are sympathetic to the people who are trying to attack us. And we have very little mechanisms to go and push back against them. It was a, an incredibly frustrating scenario, while at the same time, there was a risk aversion to under to to us projecting ourselves outwards in way that, ways that could have pushed back on some of the threats that were coming closer and closer to our bases. And and the I, I came away deeply frustrated both by just the strategic uncertainty of what we were doing, uh, this, this sense of running out the clock, um, and this also the sense of we don't want you to take any risks, but by not taking some of those risks, we were allowing riskier, yeah. the risk to actually so, uh, grow. Do, did you, was it your feeling that it was a mistake to draw down? Not necessarily. You know, it, boy, I haven't had to discuss the Iraqi withdrawal for a long time. Um, and, and honestly, like where Iraq is today um, is, I think, a lot better than many of us would have thought a decade ago. Uh, there's some there's some green shoots there. There's a, a revived sense of um, Iraqi nationalism that doesn't want to be subjugated by Iran, uh, that looks at what happened in Lebanon and, and Syria and and you know wants to chart its own path rather than being a, a proxy or client state. Uh, I, I mean, I was very frustrated by the ways in which I think a lot of our Sunni allies were being abandoned. I was frustrated that there wasn't a long-term objective, and I think it made sense. It was not productive for us to stay. That having been said, we did serve a little bit of a peacekeeping role um, because between the, the Shia, the Sunni, and the Kurds, and this is depending on, on the part of Iraq, but there was a sense that the U.S. was the only neutral mediator and everyone else was trying to encroach on each other and, and get back to some of those uh, those sectarians and ethnic schisms that have been predominated many of the atrocities over the, the decades prior. So I didn't have, I, I would not have argued that we should have stayed. I'll be very clear about that. But I also think that there are, there are things between surge and complete withdrawal, especially in the renegotiation of the status of forces agreement between the, the SOFA between the U S and Iraq, that uh, there was pressure on the Iraqi side to have it be a full withdrawal. And I think there was very little incentive during the Obama administration to try to push for something different. So it, it, the blame doesn't result on, on kind of either side, but I think there was just, it was hard for us to articulate what would a, tr- a post-withdrawal training mission, what type of limited support. Back to the question of you. So how, how did it change you? It, it certainly took a lot of shine off the apple. I mean, I, I was, I had been, a, a fierce advocate for the war in Iraq as a high school student. I was the founder of our teenage Republicans. You know, I thought that American intervention could change the course of history in some of these areas and that 
all we need to do is try and, and we can figure this out and through pluck and determination, you know, create a better world. And, uh, and I came into a very well read, I'd read all the books that you're supposed to read. I, I tried to understand the scenario as best as I could from the outside and went in and it's like, I know nothing. You know, I mean, I, I know more than most and, and I know nowhere near what I need to know to understand these dynamics. So it, cre- it, it lent me certainly a sense of appreciation for the complexities of the world, for the limitations of our ability to, especially if we're only looking at it in the short term and with a lot of domestic uh, concerns front of mind. I mean, we're going to get rolled and played by the people who've been there before we were there we're going to be there after we're gone and know the right song and dance to, you know, milk us for all we've got while we're there. And then we end up serving the interests of many, many groups, but oftentimes at the expense of our core national security. You, a few years later, you, you were a relief worker in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. spent a couple of years there in Kandahar, which is a name that everybody is familiar with because it was, it's, it's, it's been very much a place of conflict. Mm-hmm. Do you have the same feeling about Afghanistan? I have very complicated feelings in Afghanistan. I, I think after my experience in Iraq, I thought that might have been a one-off. And so going to Afghanistan, and I was a, was a conflict analyst there for the aid community. So my job was both helping mitigate risk for uh, humanitarian organizations on the ground, while at the same time, you know, analyzing the conflict, trying to understand, you know, where things were going so that groups could plan um, accordingly and try to avoid getting caught in the crossfire in that conflict. And I think the through line between Iraq and Afghanistan is certainly, and in my impact was a very significant hesitation. You know, if, if, if Clausewitz says that, you know, war is politics by other means, you know, if we are, we can fight a, a, a military war very well, but where it's essentially a political dispute that has taken on where violence has become the way in which that dispute is meted out, if we don't understand the underlying politics, we're not going to be able to be functionally competent and effective militarily. And I'm I'm actually, I, I am- We, in, we in, would be the first to make that mistake in no, Afghanistan. No, and, and I think that the challenge, that, that sort of temptation to think this time is different or we're different or, you know, that, that meme from Arrested Development, uh, you know, well- it didn't work for them, but it might just work for us. You know, that, that sense of, of, of you know, I, I certainly believe in American exceptionalism, but there's only so much we can do to uh, deny that certain geostrategic gravity does exist and, and traps that um, others have fallen into or susceptible to falling into as well. So humility was a lesson that you learned. I think that is a very good way of summing it up. Or, or just do not go in thinking that any one individual, especially yourself, has all the answers and I'll, let me put it this way. My, one of my favorite moments in The Simpsons is when Ned Flanders is asking Reverend Lovejoy, you know, a biblical question. And Reverend Lovejoy says, well, short answer, yes, with a but. Long answer, no, with an if, you know. <laughs> and and that sums up a lot of these places where, like, there's not, nothing here is clear cut. And, and you can argue it six ways. And you might be right. You might be wrong. If you keep in the back of your mind the fact that you might be right or wrong and, and continually reevaluate the underlying assumptions you have used in order to uh, project forward, because you also cannot be, you know, uh, hamstrung and sitting there in, in paralysis, right? But you also can't drive forward and forget the assumptions that you made to chart that course. There's so much I, I want to talk to you about, and we 
it got limited time, but I'm just going to assert that you you went to work for something called Operation Rubicon, where uh, team veterans. Rubicon. I'm sorry, a team Rubicon. Team yes. Rubicon, yeah. yes, where uh, veterans uh, mobilized in mm-hmm. in for when there were natural disasters mm-hmm. and so on. Uh, uh, Hurricane Sandy being one of them that you were in, involved in. You also were part of. Uh, an organization called With Honor mm-hmm. that was developed to try and encourage veterans to run for public office. And one of the premises of it, as I understood it, or as I understand it, was uh, also to promote an idea that country over party, cooperation. Give more so- folks on both sides of the aisle who have a, a shared background and can at least use that as a point to build rather than and have demonstrated the, their willingness to put the country first. You know, one of the things that I think we're, we've suffered from is uh, that after World War II, we had a whole generation of leaders who had served side by side, mm-hmm. people of different backgrounds and cultures, people of different political persuasions, and uh, who were willing to battle on the field of ideas without discrediting each other as Americans or foreclosing the notion of maybe we can figure out a way to work together because when you're at war, you have to work together Mm -hmm. and you have to find ways to work together. Do you think that there is a generation of leadership, you included, who, who reflect that ethic? Will that be one of the byproducts of these long wars in Afghanistan and Iraq? I certainly hope so. I mean, I think there's a, a very impressive crop um, of, of Americans who've served uh, overseas who are coming back and getting involved in, in civic and political life. Uh, I mean, just, I mean, a tremendous number of people that I'm so proud to call friends during Sandy. I had a friend call him like, so when are you done? Like done? Like it, it, it I mean, we're done when we're done. Like, I'm not like, Oh, I'm going to check out now. Like the mission, the mission is there. And I think there's a number of those of my colleagues who kind of bring that same ethos into, into Congress on either side of the aisle. Uh, and, and can, can put into perspective, which I think is an important thing to do in politics. I mean, put into perspective the the trials and tribulations of the moment, 80% of which will have been, you know, yesterday's news and, and completely forgotten. And the newspaper talking about it is, is used, you know, in the, uh, in the puppy's training cage, you know, like a week later, right? Things are going to pass. This too shall pass. And being able to gauge perspective um, while ideally also trying to keep in mind the longer term challenges, the longer term threats. And maybe more importantly, when it comes to our defense, like approach things with a, not a reactionary skepticism, um, but not deferring to Mm -hmm. generals, not deferring to members of the intelligence community, Mm -hmm. taking their guidance and advice, but also recognizing the prerogatives Mm -hmm. of the role that that member serves uh, and, and trying to balance some of those institutional incentives. So you then decided to run yourself. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I noted about your campaign is you talked about long-term planning, that you wanted to think about the, you wanted to do things that- How with, sweet and naive and innocent I was. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because one of the things that I learned in Washington was just how difficult it was to get Congress to do things that might in the short term require some political capital, but in the long term might ensure a better- future for the country. People are so focused on winning the next election that it's very hard to say, hey, this thing may be a little bit difficult for you in the short term, but in the long term, I mean, it seems to me that's a huge hurdle to overcome. 
I mean, and, and you live through Simpson Bowles and, and some of the challenges right. around trying to do the really unsexy things that if we do not deal with them, will only get worse. And and looking at the current debate and dialogue around the State of the Union with Social Security has been inordinately frustrating because if we are not, if this is the level of discourse, what hope do we have that within dec- a decade we'll be able to solve the fact that there'll be automatic 10% cuts across the board to at least to Social Security payments when the trust fund is expunded, right? Like, but that's a problem to worry about a decade from now. That, that that's one of the challenges internally. Well, is- we should at least, you know, whether I we should at least agree on what the situation is, and then have a rational discussion about it. I agree, but you know, this is another. I mean, I think Trump surrendered that ground. Uh, oh, especially around. I mean, when it comes to fiscal prudent fiscal management, nobody's bathed themselves in glory in D.C. Right? I mean the. And this gets back to some of those problems is, you know, there may be gradations of, of guilt, um, but no one is without sin. Uh, and I think one of my challenges coming into Congress, it was, okay, how do I, none of the problems that I saw from the outside, um, in no way, shape or form was I inaccurate. I mean, there were additional problems that I didn't see, but what I hadn't appreciated from the outside was how many problems when you say, okay, how do we solve this? You decompose it. Okay. There's that problem decomposes into five different constituent problems, each of which decomposes into more. And so it can be very challenging to know, you know, I have a limited amount of staff time, a limited amount of political capital I can expend, a limited amount of kind of media attention I can try to draw. Where are the places that it, we can have the best return on investment for, you know, our focus? And where I saw that to be where there was an appetite for it and the potential for bipartisan movement, because that also is essential. Uh, was around uh, the balance in in war powers and emergency powers between the executive and legislative branches. Also on some veterans issues. Uh, Well, well, 100% on veterans issues. And those are important issues to deal with. They will not address the systemic Mm -hmm. challenges that make it harder for our government to address issues. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now, back to the show. Let's get to January 6th. Mm-hmm. What was interesting to me is I read that you looked for guidance from Leader McCarthy about what to do on this issue of certifying the election. I assume you you didn't have any doubts about the outcome of the election. No, I mean, to the extent that I had any questions afterwards, it was, I'm seeing a lot of allegations being made. Can can you substantiate the allegations that are being made? Because I don't want to be blithe if I don't want to, you know, ignore if there's something that I should be factoring in, but also I'm not going to take a twice screen grabbed Facebook post as, you know, the gold standard. You, you were in one of the states that were, was in dispute that, that President Trump still disputes. You won your district. So in the, the 2020 race, uh, Trump won my district by three points. I won by six. Mm-hmm. I think he was down from 
the 2016 numbers in that district. I guess in Kent County, which is the major county there, Correct, you yeah. won, he, he lost. Correct. That sounds like a plausible scenario, a vote scenario. And certainly the margin in Michigan was pretty large. But anyway, yeah. so you went for to McCarthy for guidance. Did you get it? I, I mean, I, I don't know that I characterize as going for guidance. You know, when you're coming in as a freshman member, you want to be, again, I, I will want to solicit input and advice. And there's a difference between having somebody give me political advice versus, you know, a substantive engagement on the merits or lack thereof of an issue. Uh, I think it was more, it was very, it was apparent that once, you know, Josh Hawley and, and sort of Ted Cruz were kind of in the competition for who's going to challenge and, and how and what, um, you know, that gave a lot of steam to the objections on the House side, at which point it's like, okay, if this is going to happen, uh, you'd rather be, you know, one of 180 uh, rather than one of eight. But it's interesting. The reason I raise yeah. it is because it's interesting. It's an interesting parable about McCarthy's style of leadership, which is like he doesn't want to get in between that group. And I just was wondering what what your evaluation of him as a leader is. Yeah, I actually, and my comparison is is from what I saw of, of Speaker Pelosi, um, and it cracks me up because on on the Republican side of the aisle. You know, I mean, I cast, you know, votes that that were being whipped, you know, and that's where, you know, hey, we, we expect you to vote kind of with us type of thing. I mean, the harshest response I ever got from anyone in leadership was maybe Steve Scalise sitting down next to me being like, hey, you sure you want to vote this way? I was like, yeah, I, I was like, OK. And then walking away. I mean, as opposed to if Speaker Pelosi was whipping a vote and you didn't get permission prior. Um, and, and we saw a little bit of this with um, with Josh Gottheimer's group around the Biff BBB back and forth. You know, it was. Oh, does your wife like her job at that, you know, kind of left-leaning foundation? Does she want to stay there? Because, you know, I mean, those type of threats were, <laughs> you know, yes, ideally uh, I, there would be leadership that like agrees with me, leadership that is a live and let live toleration versus like the iron fist, you know, conformity. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and complain because, you know, yes, I wish there would have been different responses you know, personally around the certification vote for sure. At the same time, the impeachment vote was a vote of conscience. It was not whipped. Um, it was it was in, it was very clearly communicated by leadership that there would be it would not factor into what committee assignments somebody had. There would be no impact on whether or not there'd be re-election support, which would not have been the case on the other side of the aisle. Frankly. And was that the case? That was the case. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, now I think there was a lot of uh, hope that um, on the Republican side there was a lot. That, there was there were some pretty sincere threats by Donald Trump to go off and form a third party Patriot Party, um, you know, really uh, tear everything down on his way out. Um, and I think there were efforts to avoid uh, Trump causing that sort of. And you think damage. that's why McCarthy went down and tried to placate him? And I mean, that's as best as I can um, figure. I mean, I, yeah, there's very much a collective action tension, you know, across. Those spectrums, and and I think there's some times where there's the hope that if there's placation, we can minimize the damage. But then when that placation becomes validation, that you know gives more aid and comfort to uh, and and resources and an influence and, and rehabilitates rather than um, uh, remediates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, I'll just put it this way: that was not a fun time. Do you have a fear that uh, Trump might still tear the party down? 
if he is not the nominee of the party in 2024? Is that a risk? I, I think it is. I don't know how much how much that's a paper tiger, though. And this has been the really interesting parallel watching Trump go after DeSantis and the ways in which I think DeSantis has played a very smart in his reactions to Donald Trump, not letting Trump dictate the terms of the game. Right. And I think that was the problem in 2016 is Trump was dictating the terms. Everyone else thought they were playing checkers and and Trump was playing you know, some like drunken form of backgammon, right? I mean, it was just, it was a very, very different, you know, apples and oranges, you know, using Disney's bucks at a Caesar's palace. Like it just didn't compute. I think the challenge I see this time around, I mean, Trump was really good for business. He was really good for media attention. Mm-hmm. Less so now. I mean, some of that has become sort of old hat, but. What are the political implications of that? Well, let me put it this way. I mean, I know you've talked about this on the podcast, the DCCC, putting in, you know, mm-hmm. spending money to boost my primary challenger. And in my mind, it's okay. They spent, you know, a little under half a million dollars to support my primary challenger. We should point out that by supporting, by running ads, identifying him as a Trump guy, as the most conservative in the race and so on. None of it was untrue. No, uh, well, though they also didn't go if there was a lot of, uh, a lot of oppo they waited to dump until the general. And and I and, and it, no, no, yeah. I, I'm not suggesting the purpose was very clear yes. to boost him against you. And yeah. I spoke out against you, you, that. And I'm grateful for it at, yeah. at the time. Well, particularly in your case, it bothered me because you had basically put your career on the line to vote for impeachment. That's why you had a contest. And here they were boosting an election denier against you. But the one thing I will say is the reason that it worked mm-hmm. was because a majority of the Republican voters in your race, in your district, were adherents to that view. Yeah, and that, that made him more desirable. Now, so it wasn't like the, the Democrats created the market. The market mm-hmm. was there, and it's still there, apparently, because you just had an election for chairman in Michigan, mm-hmm. and a guy who was an election denier and involved in many in the whole plotting around the election, the scheming around the election on the Trump side, lost to someone who is even more well he, and, he, and notably he was he was endorsed by Donald Trump. Yes. Um yeah so Trump scrambled around to yeah. endorse uh the woman uh, who won Christina yeah. Caramo who's an election denier and anti-vaxer yeah. calls abortion satanic. Um, I think yoga too. Yeah, is that right? Uh, yeah. What's important to note is that was among delegates. Yeah, that, that was a convention process, and I think what, of course, it's a it's a it's it's a different universe, mm-hmm. but it does portend difficulties for the Michigan Republican Party, which took a shellacking in this last election. What is the way back? I mean, does your brand of Republicanism have a path to rebirth, or are you stuck with? you know, the crowd that turned you out. You know, I, I think you can you can broadly segment uh, our political process into individuals who care about electoral outcomes, namely victory, right? They want to win because if you want, the reason why you get involved into politics, theoretically, right, should be you want to win, you want to gain that power and, and position to be able to implement policies you think will move the country right, in the right, right direction. Right, of course. You know, segment it between that and folks who view it as um, kind of like an emotional therapeutic uh, you know, uh, social club, right? I mean, they, they don't, the, the actual exercise of, of governmental influence takes a backseat to, you know, whatever other kind of social, you know, um, uh, benefits they derive. And the challenge is there's a, a certain alignment of effort amongst 
you know, the others, one side of the aisle that wants to win supporting the elements of the other side of the aisle that don't care about winning and that are doing things counterproductive towards that uh, in ways that I think will just kind of change how we operate politically in, and I don't say this in like a judgmental sense, but in terms of the folks who actually want to care and actually want to win, uh, you know, we lost the state house. We lost the state Senate. Um, yeah, we first no time in 40 officials. years you lost both. I mean, you lost was, governor's race by double digits. It, it was brutal. And so I think there, that is waking a lot of folks up who said, well, you know, this is not an existential threat to, and, and by the way, a lot, Trump, I think some people could be like, oh, there's a Trump cult. There's no Trump cult. There, there, to the extent that there may be sort of a, a cult like kind of fanaticism, uh, you know, Trump is not the leader. He may be idolized, you know, but he is not the leader. There is, as evidenced by the fact that the guy that Trump endorsed, mm-hmm. whose bona fides among that crowd are uh, impeccable. For, Yes, I was going to say unimpeachable, and I have to ask for, yeah, right, right. but uh, so I mean, but there's just sort of um, a nihilistic strain that you know, essentially by virtue of winning or by virtue of having a position of influence, you are de- disqualified, and so you know it, it's just going to eat its own. So let me ask you this: Let me put it in very practical yeah. terms. You have a Senate seat up in uh, 2024. First of all, can Republicans win that seat if Donald Trump is the nominee of the party? Hmm. Um, I think they can. Um, I, I Again, I don't think that Donald Trump would be the nominee. Would um, you vote for him if he were? I do not want to get to that point. I know, I, I'm no. sure of that. You no. don't have to tell me that, but I'm Listen, just you know, you're a very you're, you're, you're a very no, direct I'm, guy. I'm just asking you a direct question. No. Don, if Donald Trump is the nominee of the party, you voted to impeach him yeah. as president. Well, who's he running against? Could you? And that's it. I mean, so no, I mean, I, I, I well, let's assume it's not, Joe Biden. I do not want to see that future. If if we have, oh my God, if we have Trump versus Biden again, I mean, what that says about the future of this country that we cannot get. You know, octogenarian, well, I guess Trump would only be 77 at that point, but just the absolute lack of inspiration, the lack of, of forward looking, uh, both parties just reverting to mean despite overwhelming disapproval and frustration with that status quo. Yeah, but <laughs> but but right now they're the front runners in both parties. It seems certain to me that if Joe Biden runs for president, and I have a much more, a much, yeah. much different view of his leadership perhaps than you do. But if, but if Joe Biden is uh, runs, I think he will be the nominee of the party. If Trump is the, is the front runner right now, it, it looks to be a more competitive situation. Maybe it'll be DeSantis, maybe someone else. But if, but my question, my my question to you is, you you took this very principled position, you know, Biden, you know, Trump, if you, if you had to make that choice, could you vote for Trump? Who will be more destructive to the country in the long term between Biden and Trump? I don't know how I answer that. I think I think I am there are tearing of the social fabric that that Trump is exacerbating more so than Biden. There is an erosion uh put more delicately, right? And to your point, like Trump is is sort of flagrant. I think a lot of the ways in which Biden has caused some serious undermining has been having objectively radical policies, you know, that would have that that FDR would have looked at as saying too much, having objectively radical policies, but presenting it in such a way that it comes across as very normal and very palatable. Vice Trump had some super normy policies, not all of them, obviously, uh, but had some very normy policies that just by his presentation uh, came across as as sort of. Well, I don't know extreme. that I don't know that Biden's policies would 
objectively be called radical. I think that we the, could have a debate. Under, I mean, we could, we could have it. We could have we could, forgiveness. We could have a debate about that. But we just just a few minutes earlier, we both agreed that we shouldn't disqualify each other on the basis of policy differences. The thing about Trump. You didn't vote to impeach him because of a policy difference. You voted no, to uh, impeach him because he you, you felt that he violation of the oath of office yeah, actions. Yeah. So yeah. you don't believe Biden has disqualified himself by not being faithful to his oath, do you? I think to the extent that he's capable of being faithful to the oath he has tried. Um I there are Do you think he's violated the Constitution? I think some of its actions around um acknowledging the illegality of actions. Now, granted, these were ones that maybe there was more public support around, but still pressing forward. Mm-hmm. I, I'm talking the uh, some of the actions around the OSHA vaccine mandate, some of the, uh, the sorry, there's an early one that's escaping me right now, but where it was, I mean- it, You put those in the same category as- In terms of undermining- As election denial. I think there might be category differences in, in the dramatic impact, I think, of what it does to erode the long-term sustainability of rule of law in this country, they are both incredibly corrosive. Let, let me um, ask you a last question here. You're 35 years old. Mm-hmm. That is a spring chicken in today's political world. Are, would you, are you considering running for that Senate seat? I'm certainly not removing anything from the equation. I think the I care about policy. I care about having good policy outcomes. And I think one of my frustrations with our polarized system is there are a lot of areas where fundamentally there's not a significant difference in approach on either side of the aisle. I mean, you, slight gradations, but so much of the way that our government functionally operates, even when it wants to be able to do something and to accomplish something, it cannot get out of its own way. So, so you're considering running for the Senate. Okay. All right. He's nodding. For those who can't see, he's nodding. Listen, there's so much that I would love to have more conversations with you over time. And I appreciate the opportunity to do that. And and I very much appreciate you being here and uh, sharing your views with students and having exchanges with students, which I think is so important. So, Peter Meyer, I very much appreciate it. Thank you very much. I appreciate the time. Good to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Finder Annenberg. The show is also produced by Jeff Fox and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.